welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This is the story of my grandfather's grandfather, Henry Cohn, who, in 1852, at the age of 21, left the shtetl of Dobzhin in what is today Poland to set sail for America. A year before Henry Cohn died, in 1915, he wrote a slim journal of his adventures, stories of escaping the military draft by crossing a river on his brother's back, becoming a furrier and then a peddler, stories about his friends getting murdered, his crossing of the Isthmus of Panama on foot, while on his way to California, pirates on the high seas, seeing the lynching of judges in San Francisco, and eventually making it to the gold country in St. Louis and Poker Flats in Sierra County, north of Lake Tahoe. In 1852, Poker Flats produced $700,000 in gold in a single month, and then celebrated the event with a string of triple hangings. Henry Cohn dedicated his book called Recollections of My Youth to His Descendants. I am one of those descendants. Henry Cohn's daughter, Emma, had a son, Erwin, who had a son called Yorick, who is my father. Because this book was written in Gothic German, which no longer exists as a language, we would not be hearing this tale without the incredible translation and investigative work of Arnold H. Zwieg, a relative who I've never met. Arnold gave the book to my aunt Lisette, who, upon her death, gave the book to me. I hope you enjoy this story, which shows how much and how little has changed since the 1850s in California and beyond. I was born in Dobjing on the Druents in April 1831. On the eighth day of my life, I was given the Hebrew name Haim amidst a big celebration. The exact birth date cannot be ascertained. This is because, in the beginning of the 1830s, great political turmoil was prevalent in my homeland, and in all likelihood, no birth registers were kept. Dobzhing was a small Russian-Polish town separated from Prussia only by approximately a 120-foot width of the Druens River. The town's population amounted to three to 4,000 souls, of which about two-thirds were Jewish and the rest non-Jewish. The Jews were split into two classes. About three-quarters were so-called prostaks, or misnagim, and one-quarter were Hasidim. The former were skilled laborers, traders, and businessmen and lived a rather comfortable middle-class life. The Hasidim, mostly terrible fanatics, studied, or rather learned, the Talmud and let themselves be supported by their wives, who generally ran some small trading business. More often than not, however, they were being fed and supported by their prostak-in-laws. The non-Jews in Dobzhing, all Catholics, were civil service employees, farmers, all sorts of laborers, bartenders, water carriers, and Shabbos Goyim, which are Gentiles hired by observant Jews to perform tasks which Jews are forbidden to do on Sabbath. This practice is forbidden, but commonly practiced. 
It's noteworthy that the population lived together peacefully and often in friendly relations, despite the Jews applying, unfortunately, some pretty nasty expletives to the Gentiles, the repetition of which I would rather forego. My father's name was actually Carol Kahn. I have no idea why the local police wrote Kohn. Maybe it was because Kahn is the Polish word for horse. I add this only as an aside. My father was a simple, very honest, but also very strict man. He was a dealer in leather and was well-liked by his customers, cobblers, and saddle makers. In part, perhaps, because it was easy to defraud him or steal from him, which happened frequently. Nevertheless, my father understood how to seek his advantage. As proof thereof, it suffices to say that he was able, with his small capital, to keep a big family of five sons and three daughters well-fed and to marry them off. My mother was a rock-solid noblewoman whose greatest pleasure came from supporting poor Jews and non-Jews in need and providing pleasure for others. She was extremely devout and God-fearing. Financially, held on a short leash by my father, she knew how to get access to my father's money box by means of an extra key. Father may have noticed it often, yet said nothing because he himself had a gentle and generous heart and quietly did good deeds. As mentioned before, we were eight siblings of whom three sisters and two brothers were older than I, brother Itcher about 12 to 14 years and brother Sheskel about four to six years. The two older sisters and brother Itcher were married during my infancy, and the former lived in Rypin and the latter in Dobjin. As was customary at the time in Dobjin, my parents and their eight children, as it was said, sweet and good children, lived in a dwelling consisting of a living room, salon, bedroom, and a kitchen. However, all this, and additionally the sales area, was confined to a single room of approximately 13 by 13 feet. This room also contained a big four-poster bed with a sturdy canopy which doubled as a storage shelf for the leather. Besides this universal room, there was a large room used as a leather warehouse. It was also suitable for providing lodging for the frequent visitors. I think often and with admiration of how it was possible to fit the ten family members more or less comfortably into this universal room, to keep all of them healthy and in good spirits, and to rear the children. Indeed, it was not easy on my mother, yet she was, as noted earlier, satisfied, even happy. She remarked often, what am I missing? When I see these beautiful and healthy children, I feel like the luckiest person and no thanks to God for his grace will be sufficient. The best business day for my father was always Friday because it was precisely on that day that the biggest weekly market took place. Saturday, the cobblers could not buy anything, and on Sunday, they themselves kept their Sabbath. On Friday afternoons, with the beginning of Shul, my father often had to throw out his customers. Despite the crowded conditions, mother, without missing a beat, prepared the usual Sabbath fares in the kitchen, or rather, in the corner designed as such in the only room. The meals usually consisted of fish, consomme, meat, and vegetables. A good challah, of course, was never missing. Sabbath was a real blessing and the only real rest for the whole week, yet it was traditionally solemn and even enjoyable. With the beginning of Sabbath, all worries disappeared. Upon returning from Shul, 
the room was already tidied and had fresh sand sprinkled. Everywhere, the white bed covers and the tablecloths tried to outdo the shine of the usual Sabbath candlesticks and lights. All this, the aforementioned delicious meal and often beer, brought a very festive ambiance. Upon intoning the somber and joyous Hebrew prayers and songs, with the participation of all present, everyone was soon swept into a cheerful and happy mood. My school years were not very rosy. From my fourth year on, like all other boys, I left early in the morning to attend school. I did so in winter, too, while it was still dark. Naturally, I had to take candles with me, as did everyone else. We were taught or learned how to pray and read in Hebrew. The teacher, usually a rundown Hasid who lacked any knowledge other than Hebrew, worked with the little and big ones from dawn to dusk. The teachers, who were not hired by any official governing body, were supervised by the local rabbi only insofar as the older and better students were sporadically tested to check on their progress. Any other knowledge was frowned upon, and the keeping and reading of books other than Hebrew ones was strictly forbidden. Tuition was paid monthly by the parents according to their economic status or by prior mutual agreement. The school was usually in one room, which, just like in my parents' home, served all living and household needs simultaneously. My subsequent and much better teacher was not a Hasid, and he was somewhat more sophisticated than many of his colleagues. He'd even written several scientific books in Hebrew on astronomy and similar subjects, but none of them had been published. When I was about 10 or 12, I had several conflicts with him. I had no liking at all for learning the Talmud. When I was 14, I told my father I would not continue attending the school and that I would rather become a craftsman. After a few weeks, my mother took me to ripen to my brother-in-law, Feibush Wilk, who was a furrier. I became an apprentice to him, and I did not have a bad time with my sister Henna, who was a rather pretty and lively woman. Brother-in-law Feibush, despite being a good, able, and industrious worker, knew his craft, was too boyish, unsophisticated, and unremarkable. I felt at the time that the two of them did not match too well. My brother-in-law worked hard. During the summer, lamb, sheep, and also more valuable pelts were tanned. Then, in the fall, they were converted into fur hats and coats. Additionally, several types of caps were manufactured, which were sold by peddlers at the annual fair. Ripin, about three miles from Dobzhin and a mile and a half from the Prussian border, was a rather clean city with a population a little larger than that of Dobzhin. Half of the population was Jews, who at the time did not enjoy a very good reputation. Besides a few decent businessmen and craftsmen, most people dedicated themselves to horse trading, peddling, smuggling, etc., and nothing was holy to them. There were only a few Hasidim. I, despite my youth, worked actively to follow the example set by my brother-in-law and did not complain. However, as I remember, I became very sick and I was taken to my other brother-in-law, by the name of Lichter, who owned a somewhat better restaurant bar. His wife, my older sister Sarah, a noble and upright woman, took care of me until my mother came and took me home upon my recovery. All in all, I did not have any remarkable experiences during my two years in Ripen. I had not gained anything there, nor had I lost anything. 
It was customary in Poland that young men due for military service were not called up. However, those who were pre-selected by the military authorities to be conscripted were, on a specific night, assaulted in their dwellings by soldiers and gendarmes, assisted by the mayor or town commissioner. They were arrested right out of their beds or wherever they were found. Very often, they were bound and then turned over as recruits to the military authorities. This roundup was orchestrated simultaneously in all of Poland. My older brother Shaskel, who actually was due for military service, had, like many others before him, been safely across the border in Prussia since before the roundup. I would like to note that up to that time, all Jewish youth due to the military service had fled Dobzhin and not a single Jew had been a soldier. The conscription of 1847 took place in the spring. The mayor of Dobzhin, as well as his secretary, meant well by my father and gave him a discreet hint indicating during which night said conscription would take place. Even though I had apparently nothing to fear on that particular night, I stayed with my brother Itcha, whose home was close to the Druins River. The next morning, we heard which of the young men had been sought. I learned that the authorities were at my parents' home, oddly looking not for my brother Shaskel, but for me. The decision was made for me to cross the Druids into Prussia, and as soon as possible. Brother Itcher, a very tall and strong man, took me on his back. By wading and swimming, we got across the river. I was then in Golub, the Prussian border town, in safety. During the following 14 years, I did not set foot in Dobzhin again. Thereafter, I started a new and serious life. I'd like to mention here that from this time on, I never deliberated very much, but I might well say that I acted mostly on instinct. I stayed in Golub several months, waiting to find out how my affairs and those of my brother Shaskel would be resolved. If I had turned myself into the military, I could possibly have gotten free, but to the detriment of my brother. I preferred to forego that possibility, whereupon my brother Shaskel returned to Dobzhin without having the slightest problem. After a few months, he became engaged to the daughter of the finest and most respected citizen and councilman, Michael Rowena. Golub, a pleasant and friendly little town with plenty of commerce and traffic to Poland, gave the impression to a casual visitor of being linked as only one city with Dobzhin, despite being separated by a narrow river at the border. However, with respect to culture and customs, there was a difference as great as heaven and earth. This difference exists even today. Around the fall of 1848, I started an apprenticeship in Strasbourg, Prussia, with Hirsch Joseph a Furrier. My master, a handsome man of about 40 years old, was industrious yet always friendly. He conducted a moderately successful cap and fur business, which employed beside me only one other apprentice. I always did my duty, and I often acted beyond my strength when, in the busy fall season, I worked until two o'clock in the morning. I must concede that I was given some preferential treatment since I was a distant relative. My mother came to visit often. I was modest and undemanding, did more than my fair share of work, and was rewarded by my master's full confidence. Mr. Joseph's confidence extended so far as to let me and David go to the market. 
I do not remember hearing anything in Strasbourg about theater, concerts, or lectures, yet once I was happy to participate in an amateur theatrical production of William Tell, in which I spoke only a few words. On April 18th, 1852, I passed my journeyman's examination at the Furrier's Guild. I received my journeyman's diploma and journeyed by foot, as it behooves a journeyman, to Golub, accompanied by a dozen friends and colleagues. I had decided to emigrate to America. My parents, however, did not want to hear about it at all. My mother cried uncontrollably and begged me to desist from my intent. I explained to her, as I did to my father, in a clear and concise form, that I was decided on emigrating. I had sufficient money, and I had a passport to go to England in the event that my father would not provide me with travel funds. I told him that in England, I could earn enough in order to eventually reach America. Given that possibility, however, he would never hear from me again. This exchange resulted in my receiving 60 thalers from my father on the following day and another three thalers from my brother. My mother outfitted me with some clothes and after solemn and heart-trending farewells from relatives and acquaintances, I left from Hamburg at the end of April. Once again, I could say goodbye to my father only from across the Druins River. Since my finances did not permit me to travel by steamer to New York, there was no other choice but to cross by sailing ship. And so I departed to New York on May 5th, 1852, with the small two-masted Lewitzo Lelkendorf, with Captain Gunther, a good-natured and friendly man. The approximately 200 passengers aboard the ship were accommodated in a large area. There was no other space for the passengers, among whom there were, beside German citizens, many with wives and children, about 20 Jews. The sleeping facilities were large and open bunks that were stacked by twos and threes, and each one was furnished with two to four mattresses. The passengers had to provide their own pillows and blankets. The sleeping spots were not specifically assigned, and the group as a whole, men and women, made its own arrangements as well as possible. The Jews, understandably, kept to themselves and did not concern themselves too much about the others. Early in the morning, the wake-up call came, and everybody, especially when fair weather prevailed, had to go atop deck as quickly as possible. Even those afflicted with seasickness and others slightly ill had to leave their berths. Those who did not want to were smoked out with cayenne pepper. Meals were taken on deck. I do remember that we Jews received permission from the captain to prepare an extra lunch for ourselves for the Sabbath, consisting of prunes and dumplings. The weather was generally good. A few gales, but many counterwinds. In order to sail forward at all, we had to resort to crisscrossing. The passengers lived peacefully with one another. The time was shortened by several interesting events of nature and by passing the time with a variety of foolishness and entertainment. Thus, we arrived after sailing for 64 days in the harbor of New York. I found shelter in New York with a family from Dobjin who had lived in America for a few years. The man, I think, his name was Levy, 
was a cutter and had been working for several months in New Orleans and in South Carolina. He did not want his wife and eight-year-old daughter to follow him there because of the oppressive summer heat. I was thus well taken care of. After resting for eight days, I found work with a furrier who I knew from Strasbourg. However, I soon noticed that this friend was going to exploit me, so I looked around for other work. In doing so, I met by chance a young man from Strasbourg named Flatto, who was a peddler in the countryside. Flatto recommended that I also become a peddler, and he kindly offered to take me along and give me guidance. My remaining 10 shillings, which is about two and a half dollars, along with my wages for four weeks' work with the furrier, gave me working capital of nine dollars. Another young man, also from Dobjin, who had been in New York for some time, lent me another six dollars. I used this to purchase the necessary blanket with an oilcloth cover. I also acquired at Almond's in the Bowery notions and haberdashery for twelve dollars. On Monday morning, Flatow picked me up on time and we crossed the Hudson River by steamer ferry to Newark, New Jersey. From there, we went by railroad and got off at about two stations inland. I want to note here that Flatow was a rather handsome, well-built man of about 22 to 24 years of age who had been living in America for several years. When we got off the train, I believe the town was Dover, Flatow said to me, This here is a listing of towns for this week till Sunday, showing you also where you should stay each night. On Sunday, I will be with you again. Thereupon, we walked along the country road together for about two hours, up to a point where the road split. After wishing me good luck, he said, you go this way and I'll go the other. Sunday we'll meet again. Goodbye. The way I felt at that moment, I'll never forget. As long as I could see Flat Owl, I continued to walk, yet... As soon as he was out of sight, I sat down on the first rock and cried bitterly. When no more tears came, I mustered some courage and continued walking, but I did not offer my wares to anyone that day. I sheltered for the night with a nice farmer, and it was good. When I wanted to pay for breakfast and before leaving, the farmer's wife told me with words and gestures that she would not take any money from me, but would want to buy something from me. She then proceeded to select a few items and paid me. Further, she took a few small items such as needles, thread, etc. as payment for my overnight stay. Those few cents were my first business income. Many of the farmers at that time took pleasure in giving the peddlers overnight shelter, and one was always rather well taken care of. I heard later that it was generally customary that the farmers did not take payments from the peddlers, but the wives picked a few items. Because my English was poor, people made great allowances for the greenhorn. I traveled according to Flatow's instructions and was satisfied with my modest success. I was very pleased to meet Flatow again on Sunday, and we shared a very pleasant day. Again, Flatow furnished me with a travel and overnight stay schedule for the following week but only until Friday, because on that day, I wanted to go to New York to purchase merchandise and to rest. We separated Monday morning, and as strange as it may seem, I have never seen this benefactor again, nor have I heard anything about him. The few days until Friday passed by like the prior week without a hitch. The result of the first trip was $16 in cash and some unsold merchandise. I paid off $3 of my $6 debt, 
and use Saturday and Sunday to purchase new merchandise and to fully prepare for my next tour. Monday morning, I again went by way of Newark into the countryside exactly as I'd done the first time. I quickly became acquainted with the farmers or their wives and apparently was well-liked because some of the farmers told me I was not so saucy, impertinent, or bold as some of the other peddlers. On Friday, towards evening of the second week, I was in New York again. Bottom line, everything sold and $24 cash. The complete sellout came about like this. On the way home on Friday, a Yankee called me, inspected my inventory and asked, what will you take for the lot? I thought he was joking, but still gave him a price, whereupon he said, but with the basket and everything, and paid me what I'd quoted. I paid off my remaining $3 in debt in New York, and I was thus debt-free. On the other hand, I also had an unfortunate experience on this tour. During the first few days, an elegantly dressed gentleman, I think he was German, called to me from a passing wagon and asked what I had for sale. He selected a razor for two and a half shillings and paid me with a $3 bill. I gave him $2 and one and a half shillings change. Already in the next village, I heard to my consternation that the $3 note was out of circulation and worthless. During the Jewish high holidays, I remained in New York. I tried my luck with the sale of stationery between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, both in New York and Long Island, but without success. As a greenhorn, I was not slick enough to compete with the city smarties, especially the Jewish ones. I resupplied myself with merchandise and everything else necessary for the next trip, but this time not a basket, but all the paraphernalia for a backpack. At Ullman's, I purchased a somewhat better grade of goods and gladly made use of the credit offered to me. During the high holidays, I met with two friends who had been in America for some time. They had come from the southern state of Alabama and planned to remain in New York. One of them was my buddy David Wallenberg from Dobjin, and the other was Hyman Wallenberg from Golub, both cousins. The former traded in gold and silver articles, as well as some lace goods. The latter traded in dry goods, kerchiefs, etc. Naturally, we became friends very quickly. They peddled in the states of New York and Pennsylvania, while I remained in New Jersey. We agreed to meet every other week on Friday or Saturday in New York, where we shared a room in the boarding house of Mrs. Hines on Walker Street. After the high holidays, I set out again with renewed spirit, had good success again, and profited nicely. I became well-known on my trips, which pleased me, but at the same time, my pack got heavier and uncomfortable. After a short period of time, I was ready to buy everything for cash and did not have to go into debt. We three friends met, as agreed, every other weekend and always spent a couple of enjoyable days in New York. I had made many good friends. I had also acquired a small bank account, which pleased me and was a source of great pride. Towards the middle of September, 1853, I again arrived in New York after my usual two-week trip peddling. David also came, and we expected to see Hyman on Saturday. Instead, we received a message from Poughkeepsie in the Catskill Mountains with the sad news that he had become the victim of an assault. David and I immediately traveled to Poughkeepsie and found him with an injury to his chest, but otherwise chipper and relaxed. Hyman enjoyed our visit and recounted the events of his assault. His assailant approached him on a county road and shot him with a revolver 
took his wallet and money, his watch, his chain, and a ring, and then left him for dead. Hyman was found soon after and transported to the nearest village and brought to a hotel. Hidden in his clothes, we found another $1,700. The attending physician told us immediately that the shot was a fatal one and that his patient could not be saved. The state and the county offered a high reward for the capture of the murderer, and only two days following the publication, a man, big and strong as a giant, was betrayed by his lover and was arrested. Together with some other equally tall men, he was shown to the injured man. Hyman identified him immediately with the words, This is the man that killed me. Three days later, our good friend and colleague, Hyman Wallenberg, passed away. We brought his body to Albany, where the Jewish congregation laid him to eternal rest in the traditional manner. After deducting our costs and other expenses, the remaining money, plus the revenue of the sale of his merchandise and belongings, was sent to his parents in Golub. The murderer, as we read in the newspaper a few weeks later, was convicted, condemned to death, and executed. At this point, I want to relate something about the real, genuine Americans of those times. Once, when I stayed overnight with some farmers in a remote area in New Jersey, I was asked by the farmer during a conversation whether I'd ever seen a Jew. Look at me, I said, and you see a Jew. Thereupon, he got up, offered me his hand and said, I am glad to see you, a true son of Israel. At the beginning of 1854, there was a great exodus from New York to California and Argentina, and we had thought that we too would make a change in the fall. We vacillated between the two places, but decided on California, determining that friend David would go in the fall and I would go the following spring. David wrote that he did like it in California and that he'd already joined a firm in Folsom, California. And towards April in the spring of 1855, I got ready for my trip. One day, I was visited by a decent-looking Jewish man who said, that he had heard that I was intending to travel to California. He said he himself had the same intent and he'd already purchased a ticket for a ship's departure on May 5th. However, he'd received a letter from his mother in Berlin asking him quite unexpectedly to come post-haste for an urgent family matter. He was therefore willing to sell his ticket very cheaply to me. I refused at first. He came back soon after and made such a favorable offer that I told him I would buy the ticket provided it would be issued in my name. We both went to the steamer's office, where he stayed outside and did not come in with me. When I presented the ticket to the clerk, he questioned me as to where I got the ticket. When I told him, he replied, I should be quite happy not to have traveled with that ticket because I surely would have been expelled from the ship since the ticket had been reported stolen shortly before. I mentioned to the clerk that the seller was actually waiting outside. He gave me a criminal officer to accompany me. I pointed out the person in question, and he was taken away. I have no idea what transpired after this incident. There was no thought yet of the Transcontinental Railroad, and the steamers to and from California left only every other week. I bought from the office a steamer ticket to San Francisco via the Isthmus of Panama, and we left New York on May 5th, 1855, during the most glorious weather. The trip to Aspinwall, now called Cologne, 
took about eight days and was very good and most interesting. The steamer was fully booked and the passengers were in good spirits and full of camaraderie. There was much activity in Aspinwall, partly due to the many immigrants, but also due to the construction of the Isthmus Railroad, which was primitively halfway completed. Soon after our arrival, a train brought us to the station at the end of the line. Some of the passengers mounted mules and others, including myself, wandered by foot a stretch until the evening. We slept in the open. For protection against assault, we posted watchmen. The path across the Isthmus of Panama, about 47 miles, was very dangerous because of the many robbery attempts, more so for the returning people than those going to California. We spent the night quietly. We continued our trek the following morning pretty early and arrived in Panama at about 4 p.m. and very tired. I turned over my luggage and that of some friends to a Mexican lad with a mule, and I found it correctly in Panama. To our distress, we were informed in Panama that the steamer Golden Gate, which was supposed to be there waiting for us, had run aground on the Pacific coast. The accident was apparently caused by bandits. We were therefore forced to wait 14 days in unpleasant and unhealthy Panama to catch the next steamer. I didn't see very much in Panama besides dirty streets and raggedy beggars and many big Catholic churches that were noteworthy. I used the opportunity until our departure to sell as much as I could of the merchandise that I had brought along. I succeeded well and made almost the cost of my trip. To our salvation, the beautiful steamer Sacramento arrived at the scheduled time. The cruise on the Pacific Ocean was mostly along the coastline of the southern states, except for a stretch in the Gulf of California. It was very hot, but still quite splendid. Time passed rapidly and pleasantly until, after a voyage of 12 days, we arrived at our destination on June 10th. I was in San Francisco, where I immediately met several acquaintances. Before long, I became settled. San Francisco was hilly and already a rather pretty city. It had many attractive stores and a lot of traffic. The climate, equally mild in summer as in winter, was just beautiful. I never experienced rain from April to September. In California, specifically in San Francisco, times were quite nasty. There existed, particularly in the higher social circles, some very immoral conditions. Robbery, murder, and bribery were all the daily fare. The perpetrators usually went scot-free because the judges were also bribed. These evil conditions caused an opposing party to form a vigilance committee that energetically exercised lynch justice. Many were accused, arrested, among them a few judges. After a quick trial, three of them were hanged in bright daylight from the railings of the balconies on Montgomery Street, the main street. This caused quite a stir and a bit of anxiety and excitement. The population calmed down soon after, mostly because they sided with the Vigilance Committee. New judges were appointed and conditions soon improved. As I had done in the East, I started immediately to peddle in the country. Leaving Sacramento, I looked for my friend David Wallenberg, who had a good business in Folsom, Sacramento County. Together with another man from Dobjin, I also settled there for the time being, and from there called on farmers and the gold diggers in the surrounding area with only average results, since this area gets very hot in the summer and my pack getting to be a real burden, I bought a mule that made things a lot easier and more comfortable. 
After a short time, I became sick with malaria, an intermitting fever that reappeared every third day and which, because I continued to work, severely affected my health. When I arrived in a mining town two weeks later with a high fever, a local businessman who I had called on, I think a Jew, told me that he would not let me go in this condition and that I should stay with him. I accepted this gratefully. The businessman gave me a few drops to put in water in the evening, whereupon I broke out in a strong sweat, and after two days, I was perfectly fit, so I could continue. However, I didn't like the area in general, and therefore, I decided to go on further. I knew that a true cousin of mine, the son of my mother's brother, and some other relative named Hyman Jacob and Mendelssohn, had a business in St. Louis, Sierra County, up north in the gold mines. I wrote to them and told them of my situation and asked if I could go there with them. In their reply, they told me that business and the times were so bad and so hopeless in the mountains that if I made a living in the valleys, I should rather stay there. Nevertheless, I did not let myself be deterred. I soon left by steamer towards Marysville and from there, about 50 miles into the mountains to La Porte and another five miles further to St. Louis. My dear relatives, quite surprised by my arrival, received me joyfully and with open arms, particularly since I bothered them little and, as seen later, became quite useful to them. St. Louis was a busy gold mining town consisting of 20 to 25 wooden houses. Among them were three good general stores, a tobacconist, a bank, Wells Fargo, and a fine French restaurant with hotel, a butcher, a baker, a German and American physician, and a horse stable. Activity in the town was limited to Saturday and Sunday when the gold diggers from the surrounding neighborhood arrived to sell their gold and to buy their weekly supplies. Together in their entourage came many gamblers and card players. The gold diggers sold their gold at the bank or to merchants. The price was according to the fitness and origin and averaged about $18 per ounce. The buyers cleaned the raw gold first, usually in a retort. Most of the money, however, was hauled away by the gamblers on Saturday evening. That was the routine from spring to late fall. The mines were very productive. During the winter, with the snow as high as the houses, the miners could work very little from the end of October until the beginning of March and could hardly wash any gold. Many of the diggers went away to come back the following spring. I also tried to peddle to earn some money and visited the towns of Laporte, Pine Grove, Downeyville with good results. The enterprise of Mendelssohn and Company consisted of the main store in St. Louis and a branch operation in Poker Flat, about four miles from St. Louis. Since both businesses were successful, there was also enough work for me to do. Mendelssohn looked after the business in St. Louis, and Hyman made purchases in Marysville and San Francisco. The transport of the merchandise was accomplished by means of the company's own mule train of about 40 mules. The freight from San Francisco to Poker Flat cost at the time about $50 per 100 pounds. The sales clerk in Poker Flat was a young man named Jacob Alexander, who was related to me, but not to Mendelssohn or Hyman. At the beginning of 1856, based on my suggestion, a cousin of mine, 18 years old, Jacob Engler from Thorn, came to St. Louis and was hired as a bookkeeper. In the spring of 1857, Mendelssohn and Hyman decided to turn the business over to us, namely to me, Engler, and Alexander, and to return home. 
The remaining capital of the business was to be sent in agreed-upon installments. They left towards fall. I accompanied them as far as San Francisco, where they introduced me to the merchants with whom they had been in contact. Henceforth, I had to do all the purchases and arrange the transport of the goods. This all went well. The business prospered well enough that we could punctually fulfill our obligations to Mendelssohn and Hyman. I went to Marysville almost every other week and to San Francisco every five or six weeks. I also went to our other branch in Poker Flat. There was another general store in Poker Flat named W. Armour. The Armour brothers came originally from Kempen. In the spring of 1858, the elder Armour, then in his late 30s, became homesick, and because he did not like the business very much, he sold it to us and left Poker Flat. Poker Flat, as the name implies, was a gambling town. It consisted of, besides our business building, a butcher shop, a bakery, about 15 houses, with bars and gambling dens. It was situated in a very deep ravine, bordering a brook, bearing great amounts of gold. The gold diggers, very ordinary folks, lived in huts next to their gold finds, which were usually in the riverbed. Of course, they could work there only in the summer, but had much success. Just as in St. Louis, Saturdays and Sundays were the best business days. Again, without fail on those days came the gamblers, and everywhere, even in the open streets, there was gambling. The gamblers moved on again on Sunday evening, and everything quieted down, just as if nothing had happened. The business in the store went as follows. The gold diggers got outfitted with new clothes on Saturday, leaving their old clothes behind in the store. Food items, tools, and paraphernalia for mining and dredging activities were ordered, and those items were delivered to the miners during the week. Only the most necessary things were taken along. Only seldom did we see any women. It's understandable that our prices were high because we were without competition. During the summer of 1858, a rumor circulated in Poker Flat that high in the mountains, some diggers had discovered some rich gold mines. Such rumors invariably caused great excitement, and a lot of people proceeded from Poker Flat somewhere around two to three miles to the mountains. Because the incoming news was excellent, we decided at once to establish another business up there. I went with a carpenter, but found only people without any houses or even any gold. What I found was a beautiful virgin forest. With the encouragement from people living there, among them a few acquaintances of mine, I looked for a plot to build right next to the water spring. Three weeks later, a log cabin was entirely finished. We did not lack for lumber, and the houses consisted of a single square room. The walls were covered with shirting, the separations between the thick round logs were filled with clay, and the store was ready. Shelves were installed. An iron stove for cooking and heating was brought in as well as the merchandise, but beside the transients, there were still no people. In the meantime, fall had arrived, and the miners had nothing to do because of the high snow. There was nothing else for us to do but wait patiently until next spring, when people would arrive en masse. In fact, this hope was justified because an Irish company of four men had discovered an extraordinarily rich spot where they recovered plenty of gold. People talked about these folks constantly. Little by little, miners settled here and stayed in the log cabins they built themselves. Prepared for the winter, all these people brought plenty of money. The winter was long. And to while away their time, 10 to 15 of those men gathered in my store and played cards all night long. 
The main business was therefore the playing of cards by my guests. I stayed up there all winter and had a very good friend, an American gold miner named Da, for company help and cooking. Da was very dependable and also very strong. When the people were gathered at night, they would find two or three dozen packs of playing cards, whiskey, and other beverages and snacks, including peaches and liquor. Dar and I would go to sleep. The men were quiet, served themselves, and for each pack of cards, they put a dollar in a certain pot. Business in St. Louis and Poker Flat went very well, and the mule train was also very profitable. During 1858, we added a sheet metal shop to our house where we manufactured channels for the gold diggers. These were in great demand and contributed substantially to our profits. In the summer of 1858, the whole village burned down except for our building and the bank. Our loss was not significant, and when the fire started, the gold diggers came running to demand their gold which was deposited in our safe. I told them forcefully that no one was going to get anything, but that everyone had to help extinguish the fires. This, in fact, was done successfully. Because of the great risk of fire, there was no fire insurance. The town, however, was quickly rebuilt. I personally was very, very concerned about the great fire danger. Shortly thereafter, in a visit to San Francisco, I couldn't fall asleep, and after a while... I eventually did, only to awaken to shouting, Fire! Once back at home, I told Engler that I would not stay there any longer if I could not sleep safely. We decided to build a fire-resistant building for our business. A builder was put in charge, and because there were stone blocks in the neighborhood, almost all hewn for the purpose, the construction proceeded speedily. Iron doors were brought in from Marysville, and we could move into our new and fire-safe building after just a few months. The business had a very fine reputation, and I was welcomed by acquaintances and suppliers in both San Francisco and Marysville. In 1859, we became partners with two Germans, Charles Hendel and Christian Berg, in a building and drainage canal several hundred meters long. I myself worked throughout the night. However, I had to give this up because standing in water, dressed only in a rubber skirt, hats and boots, caused me to suffer with rheumatism. This undertaking would have been very profitable, but it was lacking in good supervision and administration. This sluice was to serve the purpose of catching the drainage water of the neighboring gold dredges and channel it away. In the sluice were wooden rifles about 12 to 14 inches wide and equally high. Crossbars were nailed to the bottom every two meters. The whole sluice was then laid out with stones and mercury was deposited next to the crossbars to capture the gold flakes that could be found in the drainage water. Every other week, when there was no gold washing done, the stones were removed and the adhering gold was carefully collected. Business continued in this manner till the spring of 1861, when I noticed a worsening of our fortunes. This was caused partially by our own confused management, as well as by the fact that times were not as productive as before. I became itchy to make a change, and Engler shared my opinion. I would now like to recount how a mule train was organized. A relatively effective train usually consisted of 25 to 40 mules for carrying and for the riders. Our train usually had 35 mules, of which six were for riding 
and the rest were for carrying freight. In addition, each train usually had a white mare, which had a bell attached to her collar. The crew consisted of a patron, the owner of the train, a cara ador, which is the supervisor and administrator, arrieros, which is the packer and driver, and finally, the cuchinero, the cook. These people, with the exception of the patron, were all Mexicans. The cook rode in front on his white yagua, and all the other animals followed her. The cooking utensils, which were boxed, were carried by an animal that walked behind the yagua. That way, as soon as the rest stop was made, the cook could prepare the meals. The cardador had to distribute the loaves properly, watch over his people, and take care of the animals. He also had to tend to the packing gear. The arrieros had to follow the cardador's instructions. At the point of departure, the mules were loaded according to each one's carrying capacity, with about 300 to 425 pounds, including his own food for four days. Thus, they arrived with about 250 to 325 pounds of merchandise. The daily trek, as a rule, was about 16 to 18 miles. During the summer, there was a recess period of about four to six weeks, during which the animals were taken to the meadows in the mountains and the packing gear was repaired. The transport of freight by means of mules was cumbersome and tiring, particularly in the winter. During the spring, we had to be ready at about 2 a.m. at the latest, as long as the snow crust was still hard. We continued our journey and then rested at around 8 a.m. when the sun came out. Once in the fall, we were surprised by a very heavy snowstorm. Despite a tremendous effort, we were unable to advance and were forced to stop where we were, unload and sleep in the forest. When I lay down in the evening, our oldest driver, Pedro, watched over me. After the strenuous work, tired as I was, I fell asleep until 2 a.m. Upon waking up, I noticed that I was covered by a blanket of snow several inches thick. During the summer of 1859, I went to the Yuba County camp with two Mexicans who had to watch the mule train and repair the packing gear with me. After several weeks there, it became quite boring, and so I invited my friend David Wallenberg to visit. He soon came arriving after a 10-hour-long horseback ride. By chance, he met me while I was baking bread. The joy of seeing each other again was great. The following day, we rode out and entertained ourselves splendidly in the beautiful and fertile area. Back in St. Louis, the gold extraction business was quite diminished because many of the gold diggers had left in fear of the possible outbreak of a civil war. War did, in fact, occur shortly thereafter between the northern and southern states. And as if that wasn't enough, in the spring of 1863, the whole town, again, with the exception of the two fire-resistant buildings, burned to the ground. Again, our loss was very minimal. Recently, a road suitable for wagons had been built to St. Louis that made bringing in goods by mule most unnecessary, so we sold the remaining animals. The price, including the gear, averaged $120 per animal. Saying goodbye to my faithful and year-long Mexicans, my faithful Paca and Ariero Pedro, and the Cardador Juan was quite moving. It looked rather hopeless in California, and especially in the mountains. Remembering the promise made to my parents to return home, I decided to sell my shares with the consent of my partners. This was the beginning of 1863. The purchaser was a German by the name of Jack Small. I was careless, however, and did not make him agree that the balance, upon his taking over, 
was to be paid in gold currency. I received instead paper money, or greenbacks, which were then worth about 65% of the face value, and which I had to later sell in New York at 45% of their face value. After 11 years in America, I had decided to go home. I left America in the middle of August after a very festive farewell. I said goodbye to St. Louis and to the Sierra Nevada mountains, never ever to see them again. I was accompanied by 10 jolly friends who for three hours rode on horseback till we reached American House, a little town near La Porte, where we spent some very joyous hours together. And after a final goodbye, I spent a few days in Marysville and went from there by steamer to San Francisco. I stayed there for a few days until the ship's departure. The voyage on the Atlantic was quite dangerous in those days due to the southern pirates, among them the dreaded pirate ship Alabama, which plied the waters and made them very unsafe. We had to proceed for several nights with blacked-out lights. I departed on September 30th for Liverpool and arrived on October 12th and continued that same evening to London, where I stayed at the Queen's Hotel. London did not strike me favorably, since at this time of year, thick, heavy, impenetrable fog abounded. I then continued to Golub and the next day to Dobjin, where I found everybody unchanged and healthy. My parents, overjoyed, received me and shed happy tears. All the time I was abroad, I'd sent them news regularly and made them happy with occasional small gifts, which had also given me a lot of joy. Thus, each Passover, I sent my father, who was a big smoker, a simple but pretty smoking pipe, of which he was very proud. He carefully kept and guarded each pipe. When my brother-in-law, Lichter, from Ripen, once came visiting and wished to get a pipe as a gift, my father said, Those are from Heim, and they'll stay here until he comes back and I found them all exactly lined up. After all those terrific days of my journey, I didn't like it in Dobjin at all. I was bored everywhere without any occupation, and I felt at home nowhere. Added to this, I was being pestered with several proposals of marriage that made me quite uncomfortable. That was the way I passed the time until January 1864 when I met my Rosa my future wife. On May 24th, 1864, we celebrated our wedding. It is now May 1914, and 50 years have passed, which we, my wife and I, thanks to Providence, enjoyed in cordial and blissful marriage. Besides a few sad days, of which nobody is spared in such a long life, we were happily surrounded by our five dear children, who are now married, and our beloved 14 grandchildren. Even though my life, as recounted, was not full of fame, I cannot be proud that it was honorable and that in all my life I never had a serious dispute and had therefore, to my knowledge, no enemy. I do hope that this weak and simple story will be of interest to one or another. Thank you so much to Henry Cohn for deciding to take this epic adventure and for writing it down. Having myself also made the trip from Europe to live in California, completely unaware of my relative's journey, it really does feel like history is repeating itself. Reading the book aloud brought me back to the Pacific Crest Trail, which passed only 10 miles from Poker Flats. 
Henry's nights in the mountains made the moments I have woken up camping to snow covering me come alive. His stories of the destructive force of fires in Northern California and the fact he built a fireproof house in the 1860s is so crazy prescient given the current state of climate change. The fact that Henry Cohn became a U.S. citizen in 1860 was never known to his grandchildren who could have safely emigrated to the U.S. rather than perishing in Nazi death camps. In Henry's time, the dollar was only worth 45% of its face value, so not that different from today. When I recorded Podship Earth episode 83 on the toxic impacts of the gold rush, I had no idea that my relatives were responsible for some of that mercury pollution hundreds of years before. Maybe that's why I feel so responsible to clean up that particular mess. And finally, it's heartening to know that even in 1859, my male relatives were wearing rubber skirts, avoided pirate ships, and could lead a mule train at 2 a.m. Both Poker Flats and St. Louis, California are ghost towns that I look forward to visiting and reporting back to you. Please take a second to like Pod Chip Earth on the Apple review page if you have the time and are so inclined. Thank you so much for being part of the Pod Chip Earth journey from the entire Pod Chip Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Please take care of yourself and have a great week. <laughs>